Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Italy's out-half, Paolo Garbisi, was big enough to take responsibility for the missed kick that denied his country a first-ever Six Nations away win against France in Lille yesterday. I take full responsibility for that. I'm sorry for the team because I thought they were amazing. And also for the Italian supporters, it's my bad and I will work on it. Fine words from Garbisi, fine words. But if I was him, I'd be sharing that blame with a few of my teammates who celebrated the winning of the penalty as if they'd completely forgotten the rules of rugby and the fact that one of them had to step up and actually slot it over the bar. Welcome to Monday Second Captain's Six Nations podcast. Murph, Ken, Simon. Oh, hey, on how's hey it going? On, how you hey, Murph. Yeah, I mean, they did go a hey little over, overboard, didn't they? Yeah. I, mean, I thought you were going to start blaming the referee as well. Oh, he'll, we'll get there. We'll get oh, we'll there. Get to the so let's play the commentary well, first because this was an absolute sickener for Italy. Garbisi lining up the kick. The ball falls off the tee. Suddenly the shot clock comes into play. He's putting it back on. Time ticks down. He has to abandon his routine and just lash at the ball which comes back off the upright. The French commentary is very good because the commentator is speaking in a slow clipped staccato style you might even describe that makes it sound like he's giving you a grind for the leaving cert or like <laughs> Paolo Garbisi 38 meters sur la gauche pour offrir peut-être une victoire à l'Italie face au 15 de France. Oh, le ballon est tombé. Il reste 10 secondes. Oh là 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 là. 5 secondes. Elle est folle cette fin de match, ce dernier coup de pied. Oh, il va toucher le poteau. Il va toucher le poteau. Et les Français vont la jouer peut-être. Cette situation il va être mis en touche. C'est la fin du match. 13-13. Il en, il en sourit, Garbizi. <laughs> yeah, it was a little payoff at the end. I know that was going on a little bit, but there was that little <laughs> for a payoff at the end there. Ian Madigan went big last night on Virgin about the referee Murph. He felt that there were a number of infringements by, well, two anyway, by French players who were encroaching. Yeah. And therefore, it should have, at a minimum, 
the clock should have been reset or should have had another go at it. And technically, according to Madigan, is obviously a place yeah. kicker and would study these things a bit more closely than many of us. It actually should have been a penalty where the encroachment took place. So you should be marching, should be yeah. to telling those baying French fans, sorry, lads, but this kick is going to be retaken from right in front of the posts. Yeah. It's funny Carbisi took all the blame. I didn't do my job properly. That's what I would like to say. Sorry to my teammates in my country. And he kind of was gushing about it. But if you want to be a major rugby nation, you always blame the ref. And it was funny that his instinct was to blame himself, but also at that moment that Italy didn't spot this infringement. And it, it's quite an obvious rule. I mean, if you play international rugby and you definitely know that you can't encroach at a penalty. And I, I actually do think an Ireland, a South Africa, a France even, somebody on their team would spot the infringement and point it out to the ref. And it's one of those ones where... It's not like a, a rook and everything's happening at a million miles an hour. He actually had a chance but to was go it back. Bit, it was a bit unusual in, in his defence just because the ball came off the tee and then suddenly yeah. all hell broke loose. It wasn't like a normal, the guy's running and then somebody's run, running from the other team out of it. It's like the ball has fallen off. There's a French lad coming up going, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. What's happening here? Oh yeah, there's definitely an excuse for why the ref missed it. A ball doesn't fall off a tee anymore. There's you a see, roof in the stadium, is there? There's a roof in the stadium. Yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah, no wind, there's yeah, no rain. Yeah. Tees are like a... Act a, of God. Tees are like a little sticky Depends rubber. on your belief system and whether or not you think God is a French or Italian fan I suppose what about Mo Fana at the very end there caught the ball ran straight for touch like basically let's take our draw here we're out well, of the woods I kind of feel like I kind of feel like everyone was happy enough with that in that he, di- he didn't just like boot it out of touch mm. I mean it did look like he plausible wanted, deniability yeah the plausible deniability is yeah. exactly I what was he trying had. to run sorry Fabian I was yeah trying to run yeah, it out yeah, right. yeah. I wonder how Eddie Jones would have reacted if he'd been in the Italy coach's box what is the circumstances that? somebody's forgotten the kicking tee yeah. they're supposed to be taking a kick and there's no tee Ken did you know there was cameras filming the Wallabies inside Rugby World Cup 2023 during their ill-fated campaign last year that sounds like something you'll be watching well that's that's good, I suppose. That is very good. You want to ah, see failure. On. You want to see yeah. failure at that scale. Yeah. And you want to see Eddie Jones in the middle of that failure shouting for fucking tees. <laughs> <laughs> he said in that documentary, I haven't seen it, but he said at one stage, we're going to be the greatest Australian rugby union team there's ever been. And they've won two World Cups. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, but they can't even get a tee sorted. Shane Horgan on today with Chris Jones of the BBC. Andy Farrell wasn't too happy with the first half, Simon, I believe. Mm. The 17-0 utterly dominant first half. This is where we're at now with this team. It's not been petty to say Ireland didn't actually play well in this game. Well, the third I, quarter in particular was awful. Yeah, and that, and that, that was like, the most obvious one. It was the six six penalties really in a thirteen minute yeah, period, really and bad. some of them really unforced. The, the worst one was the Joe McCarthy one at the line. You know those ones that just are just when you're starting to build up the pressure again, you let them um, off the hook, and. Their players and their structures and their focus are so good that they were still easy winners in the end and they're always going to beat a team like Wales. But they left loads of points out there. Like they had 16 handling errors to Wales' eight errors, which is a little... That, that stat surprised me. And some of the examples. So Henshaw kicked too long at the very start. Crowley passed behind Nash just after that. Low through an offload that wasn't on. We went offside uh, in defence against Wales. Bundy spilled in contact. Joe McCarthy kind of had that poor fight after the tackle. He was chopped, tackled, and his body position. He, he tried to scramble another half yard, which didn't make any sense. And there was a turnover. There was a mall splintered. That was all in the opening 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that was when we sort of looked. We were so physically dominant. Like Bundy could have carried for five yards every time, which is 
quite an asset in an international rugby union game. Like, if you have that, you should actually be destroying the other team. So we weren't a little bit off it. I thought we were quite a long ways off it. Not to mention what you were saying in the second half then, Murph, that period where we kind of lost our heads a little bit, when we weren't really under any huge pressure. Wales had no weapons. Like, there was a moment, it was, remember Keller got the turnover after that really long spell of play. We were dominant in defence and Wales were throwing everything at us, loads of energy, loads of enthusiasm, and we just didn't look troubled at all. Like, Wales were toothless. So there was no real reason for us to feel any pressure and yet we lost the heads quite a bit. And just to say, obviously, this is like picking at a game where Ireland won by a ton of points and we're always going to win. But that is the standard we're at now and they didn't play very well. It was their worst performance of the Six Nations by a distance, I thought, actually. And Wales are the first team actually to throw up some sort of a game plan against us that troubled us. Like, Italy didn't do it. France obviously didn't do it. And Wales like threw numbers up in the lineout, which caused a little bit of trouble there. Didn't give us many lineouts. They didn't want to kick out. They challenged us as best they could at the breakdown. They just did. They don't have the players to do what they did. But I would just worry if a team with better players than Wales tried to target us in the same way. How we'd respond? You wanted because we won't have that power d- difference again. You wanted to make a point about a couple of the younger players, the less experienced players, Frawley Nash. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there was kind of mixed reviews on Frawley. Oh, he didn't get on the ball much. Uh, he did well, but he wasn't challenged. I mean, that's not his job. He can only play what was put in front of him, essentially. He wasn't challenged with too many high balls. Mm. But I thought himself and Nash played really well, considering how early they are in their international careers. But Frawley had, you know, not too many moments in the first half, but he had that chip wide to Sheehan, which I saw Bernard Jackman kind of criticising how often we went wide and we weren't sort of direct enough. But I actually thought we went wide to then have the option to go direct so that we didn't do the second bit. So we went wide was the smart bit. And you got to go wide. you got to earn the right to, to go, go through wide. the middle. <laughs> Exactly. Is what you're saying. Exactly. That age-old rugby saw. He had a nice wide one to Nash as well in the second half. He had the dummy and then the chip chase, which could have worked if the bounce had gone differently. He carried pretty well. He took his try, obviously. And then Nash had maybe the moment of the game with the offload to low for Lowe's try. And everything Nash did was good. Like, he's so... He's one of those players you just kind of trust. It's a sort of a feeling you have every time he gets the ball or when he's in defence. His basics are just rock solid. And now he's starting to add little flourishes to it. And I just thought the two of them really represent what Farrell does for relatively inexperienced players coming into the team. They're just... They're playing better than they did even for their province. Even Joe McCarthy did the same in his first game in the Six Nations. I thought Warren Gatlin's mind games were paltry enough in advance he tried to put yep. the pressure on Kieran Frawley we can look to, we can literally we can look to put pressure on Kieran Frawley mm-hmm. in fullback he predominantly plays a 10 and 12 for Leinster and in the two games he played a fullback for them they lost this is classic Gatlin like even even I don't think Eddie Jones necessarily well he probably would actually to mm. be fair but not many coaches pinpoint individuals in pre-matches yeah, like yeah. we're going to like mm. pile the pressure there yeah, yeah. it was pointed out by Keane Tracy that um, actually six of Frawley's nine starts this season came a fullback yeah. and Leinster <laughs> won four of them so yeah, that's not, right, yeah, yeah. not exactly accurate stuff from Gatland yeah, not, not every work. game that uh, Kieran Frawley plays at fullback uh, are games that Leinster loses but the games that Leinster lose Kieran Frawley was playing <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean the point is he, w- he won't usurp, usurp Keenan at 15 but it is a pretty exciting prospect I think to have him as a 23 on the bench that he could come on and be that sort of playmaker he looked very very relaxed very confident quick mention of an old guest of ours on the second captain's podcast I just looked it up here 30th of April 2020 deepest lockdown I would say back then yeah but we spoke to Ollie Jaeger I was told by Killian at the time I've looked up the emails it's Mm. pronounced make sure it's pronounced Jaeger not Jaeger as in like Jaeger bomb. Yeah. So I'm sticking with that. I mean, Killian's not downstairs right now, so I can't double check it with him, But <laughs> everyone seems to be calling him Jaeger this weekend. I'm going with Jaeger. 
Killian's never wrong. All right, fair enough. So Oli Jäger George, George made his here. debut at the time. So he he's twenty eight. Uh, he went over. He didn't get into the Leinster Academy. Mm. He went over pretty much after, like the day after his leaving, sort of thing, yep. to pursue an opportunity in New Zealand, basically to play some rugby over there and learn about it and all that kind of stuff. But he said when he first went over, it wasn't with the view that I'm going to be playing for Crusaders, which he ended up doing, like the top top club team in the world. And at the time we spoke to him, it looked as though maybe an all-black call-up might be yeah. on the cards. And he made the point that seems more plausible. This is at the time, three years ago, four mm. years ago. But obviously he uh, he's since moved back just in the last little while. Yeah. And we got him. We, we've nailed him. Yeah. That's and we place. finally have a scrum. I can't remember the last time an Irish scrum pushed a team back. You got to hear all our... I don't know what sound effect that was. To hear all of our coverage of what is increasingly looking like it could be... <laughs> Back-to-back Grand Slams for Ireland. Sign up now to the World Service for five-year-a-month plus VAT on secondcaptains.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In the final order again, and
The Irish rugby team continues to set all sorts of records. 18 wins in a row now at home. We've won three from three in this competition, all with a four-try bonus point. The last time we actually lost the Six Nations game was in February 2022. But what Simon wants to discuss is our sometimes lateral play in that 17 nil <laughs> first half. Shane, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel the same. It's churlish, isn't it? You know, it's uh, this procession of a, of a Six Nations uh, rugby championship is happening. Meanwhile, I'm worried that the depth isn't quite 100%. Can we not win by more? How are you, Chris What about Jones? our fourth choice loser? Yeah, yeah. Chris Jones of BBC <laughs> is on as well. Chris, how are you? Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Just, um, yeah, busy weekend up in Edinburgh, but back now. Kind of grateful for the Fallow week, but also thinking... Oh, yeah, it feels as if, you know, we've gone fallow week, one game fallow week. Mm. I don't know if that's the way to do it either. I know it's been around for a while, but uh, yeah, I mean, looking forward to the last two weekends, even if it just has this this massive hint of an Irish uh, Irish procession. Complete. Yeah, well, I am interested to hear what you, what you made of events in Murrayfield. But let's talk about Ireland first, Shane. You wrote this weekend, if Ireland play at their best, they are going to absolutely demolish teams. So how far away from their best are they at the moment? Because they seem to be winning pretty handily. Yeah, they are, but that's the that's a scary bit here. Um, the quality of the the team, the quality of the squad, the impact of the bench, the skill level that they enjoy, the freedom that they're playing with, and then I just thought, I know this is an inexperienced young Welsh side, but physically, that was a you know dominant performance as I, I've seen Ireland, especially in that uh, first half, and I know. We probably didn't wasn't as impactful on the scoreboard as we might be during that time, but it was sort of utterly dominant. And there was a period about twenty five minutes in, it was like the possession stat must have been, you know, if it was fifteen percent possession and territory to to Wales, maybe that would be the most of it. So this is what happens when you have a continued period of success, and you know, there's very very high expectations and. I don't feel bad about this because, you know, if you listen to the players afterwards, if you listen to Andy Farrell, everybody's kind of saying the same thing, that, you know, the ceiling is exceptionally high for these players. And if they do all pull it together, um, they, they can route teams. And I suppose that's what that's what they should be looking to do now. Um, you know, a couple of things that, that, that stood out for me is Ireland's ability to catch and pass. And now that sounds so basic, but... You know, rugby is really based on a fundamental, simple skill set. I suppose the difficulty is being able to deliver that under pressure. We saw, I think, with England, in, in an inability to do that, and a basic skill set dropped at the weekend. Whereas Ireland, when they were doing, when they were playing well in that first half, the ability to catch a ball early, draw a man in front of you and then move the ball across your body and pass to the man next to you. Not a big skip pass, just the guy next to you to be able to do that consistently and for everyone on the team to be able to do it. You know, it's a pleasure to watch. It reminds me of, I've said this before, it reminds you of New Zealand teams at their best. You know, I'd be playing against New Zealand teams and you'd be analysing them. You know, what are these complex moves they're doing? You know, what, what, how are they going to break us down? And all they did was run really quickly at your inside shoulder, catch the ball early and pass to the man next to, you, to them. And um, inevitably that led to, to scores and Ireland look very, when they're at their best, they look very comfortable at doing that. Yeah, like the game was never scary for Ireland, I didn't feel, Chris, but that steal by Tyburn in the mall at 17-7, the scoreline was at the time, it felt important. And for all this physical dominance, and Ireland generally don't physically dominate teams to the extent they did Wales at the weekend. But it's sort of funny that we then still relied on that. And then there was a Ronan Kelleher poach a few minutes later and Wales kind of had their dander up and you just wonder a try at that stage to make it 17-14 what sort of game we would have had and we're talking about how brilliant this Irish team and yet again the scoreline reflects dominance etc etc 
and yet that period was was kind of a strange one for Ireland. Yeah, and and you don't know whether that's because at seventeen nil halftime score, you know Wales are always going to have a bit of that game. You know Wales are, are too too proud of a rugby team with too many competitive players to have eighty minutes where they're just getting pummeled. They're always going to have a passage. What could have happened if they got it to seventeen fourteen? You know, it could easily be in the case that Ireland then just shake up, go through the gears and and pull away. I do think, and I know it's slightly splitting hairs, and maybe, you know, for the you know, looking holistically at the championship, we 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 want to try and almost make it sound competitive, even if it, even if it isn't. That period in the first half, Ireland did have loads of ball, and you could argue they were ever so slightly toothless. And would a better defensive side? It might not be from the Six Nations. It might be from somewhere else. It might be the Springboks, whoever it might be. Would they, um, they be able to make the most of of Ireland if they are going through their phase play sometimes without that cutting edge? But that again is is splitting hairs. They are way above. Um, whether England could come up with anything in two weeks' time at Twickenham is a is a big mm. big question. I, I thought England would be way better than they were at Murrayfield, which could have given them the confidence. Um, to welcome Ireland to Twickenham and really give it a go. I don't know where England are going to be now after what happened at Murrayfield. So is it Scotland? Are Scotland able to go to Dublin and, and, and make a game of it? Not so sure either. They're, they're probably the best place to do so. But yeah, I think Ireland, their cohesion, their continuity, all the things we speak about, just the more time goes on, the more settled their coaching team is, the more settled their players are, the more that looks such a factor when you compare it to teams like England and Wales who are in this constant state of transition and flux when it comes to how they're trying to play the game. Chris, can I ask you about Bundiaki? Because for us, we feel like he's gone to a whole other level in the last couple of years. He made yards on, I think, every carry against Wales. And Wales aren't a particularly big team, but he's done it against Jesse Creel, Gail Ficou, Dante, you know, the best defensive centres in the world. And it sort of feels like is there any explanation for how a player can seemingly look more powerful as they get older? Or is there something else going on here? Is it is it the variety of him, the options of him and the defenders still have to tackle him one-on-one rather than gang tackle him? It's got to be coaching, hasn't it? it it's got to come down to coaching. It's got to come down to time. Um, and it's tedious for England fans to hear their regime talk always about time and cohesion. But but it's true. Um, time is, you know, and Shane would know time together is so important. And I think it's really impressive that Aki's not coming from the Leinster setup. You know, if he was playing week in, week out with Henshaw or Ringrose, you would go, oh, yeah, well, they're, they're, they're drilling that, you know, 52 weeks a year. He's only really drilling that in Ireland camp. But then that's the benefit of him being a regular in that Ireland setup under the same coaching regime for the last three, four, five years. And yeah, there's there's a... There's a real element of Marnonu about it, isn't, isn't there? A player who maybe was was had one or two dimensions, now has three or four dimensions as they evolve and as mm. they get better. And it's really great to see because you, you could so often see with international players, their arc fluctuates. You know, they get to maybe 27, 28, they peak, they come down, um, they struggle to get back up. But he seems to be sort of getting better all the time. Keeping Robbie Henshaw out, out the team is, a, is incredible, given he was probably the form centre in Europe two years ago. Um, and it just means that they've they've got someone in there who can pivot, who can carry, who can constantly give them a source of go forward. And there are other teams in the Six Nations that would give their right arm for that. Shane? Yeah, and he, he, it's not... Um, I don't think he's increased his power. I think he's he's always been an incredibly powerful athlete. He's just developed everything else. And 
huge kudos for, for, for him doing that at that time of his career because there's a real comfort in that, so just that power game. And, you know, you can get away with it and you can get away with it at an international level, actually. And it's not, it's not even questioned. It's like, all right, that's the type of player he is. He gives us the power game. We play a different type of game off it. But I think between Andy Farrell and, and Bundy himself, they've realised, actually, the game needs to, the Ireland game is going to be something else. And we're not, it's, it's, it's not going to uh, permit to have a, ten, uh, a 12, no matter how powerful he is, that is only just a ball-carrying 12. That's not actually going to get you in the team, I'm afraid. Might, you know, might even get a bit of time as impact sub, but... But but even then, there's going to be questions. So instead, you have to up your skill level in your passing game, your drop off game, understand the game, the overall game plan of what Ireland are are doing, and be part of it. And then, when the opportunity um, um, presents itself, to use that exceptional power that you that he has, and he has done that. Like there is no doubt in the world that his skill level has you know increased significantly his passing has got much better his pass left to right when he started playing for Ireland first was poor it wasn't you know it wasn't that it was it needed a bit a, a little bit of work it needed a lot of work he's now exceptionally comfortable on the ball and passing and he is I you know I don't know his stats but he he it seems is he's as likely to pass the ball as he is to carry the ball and that creates a huge issue for opposition defense because you're playing against traditionally you're playing against someone like that you go right i'm playing against bundiaki even if i sit down and get a massive shoulder on him it's going to be difficult and he might get over the gain line but you've got a problem now that he's likely to pass the ball he's as likely to pass the ball as he is to to, to carry the ball you can't move off him you can't you know even give him you can't give him a soft shoulder you give him a soft shoulder at all he's he's not just you know um making yards he's straight through and he'll get his hands off so it is it means that he's very very difficult to defend against and as a result of that it it allows ireland to play the very type of sort of formulaic, systemized uh, game plan that means that you've got sort of players coming round, round the, um, round the back for a second touch and then that second wave. So it's, um, you know, he's a very key component to what Ireland are doing, and a brilliant example of someone upscale, upskilling later on in the career. What did you make of Frawley on his first start, Shane? I thought he was good. It was I, I was looking for him in the first half and it was I just didn't see much of him because the the you know the, it wasn't the way the game was played there was very little to do in the backfield for him if anything um the threat from um Gatland that they were going to pepper him with the high ball didn't materialize because Wales literally had no ball so um you know and I'm not saying that wasn't a bad you know necessarily a bad idea for someone starting in, in their first game in the in the Six Nations at full back but it it never happened so so he wasn't tested and then Kind of bizarrely, by the time Wales started kicking a little bit of the ball, just the nature of the way you know the back three and the number ten uh, react to different parts of the field. It was actually Crowley was back there, and it was him that was under the high ball. So he was really tested. Um, I could see he was really frustrated at one kick to contest ball that maybe he should have uh, taken, but uh, the Welsh fullback had a, actually an exceptional game and got to it in front of him. I thought what was you know interesting. I don't think. He's going to, you know, he's he's not going to take over from from Keenan. Like he's Keenan's, you know, maybe the best, most complete uh, fullback in the world at the moment. So unless he's injured, um, in, he's going to be playing the team. So what is, you know, what's for all his position in this team? 
Frawley must be thinking, how do I contribute to this team? And the best way he can probably contribute for the moment is uh, being a sub or being the sort of key member who'll come in at 15 or 10 or maybe even 12, say. And I thought we saw in limited periods what he might be able to bring to the team as a first receiver on the short side or a second receiver or actually a first receiver on the open side when Crowley was a little bit slow to get to his field because he, he was involved in the phase before because what you want from Crowley and one of his skills is his ability to take on the line and actually go after it himself. And if you do that, maybe you get caught, get caught up in that rook to have somebody naturally fit in um, and and slot into that uh, ten position without sort of you know needing the twelve to come in and the thirteen to come in. That's a very very useful development in the type of play that Ireland could have. It's a, it's another string to their bow. And while I don't think himself and, and Crowley got it perfect, I thought he was he he slightly his depth wasn't quite right, and I think the depth of the, of the other players outside him weren't quite right. I I thought we saw enough to go. This is an another thing that Ireland could do, and it was really it'd be really worth their while developing that. So I think overall he had a, he had a good game where he fits in in the sort of Ireland setup and how he contributes over you know um, the next you know, weeks and months um, is slightly more complicated. I think. Yeah, I thought he had a really good game. A um, couple of little errors maybe, but when you look at himself and Nash, who've come in, you know, with very little experience and suddenly just look confident and sort of backing themselves in an Irish shirt and arguably playing even better for Ireland than they do for their province. It again sort of speaks to what Farrell seems to be able to get out of players. And we've spoken about Klopp being able to do this with Liverpool as well, Chris. But it just strikes me, no matter what Farrell does selection-wise, it seems to work out for him. And then we're starting to do the, this 6-2 bench thing as well, which is arguably copying South Africa, but arguably it's just that you're desperate trying to fit in, particularly, say, Baird, Ryan and Conan. Mm. But then you have Keller coming on and playing, I thought, maybe his best rugby in an Ireland jersey as well. Murray is still playing really well. Keane Healy even carrying and looking good. McCloskey made a big tackle at the end. So all the guys who maybe think they should be on the team are coming on and adding something positive. And our bench, I think, is as good as South Africa's now. Yeah, and I, I definitely saw that in Marseille, didn't you? When um, I think they all came on near the same time and Baird and Conan, you thought, oh, wow, there's this power, there's dynamism coming off the bench. I mean, it kind of, when things are going for you, like with the box of the World Cup, they could have gone for an 8 naught bench and they'd have probably, it'd have probably <laughs> paid off. But then like France, they go with 6-2, Dante gets sent off mm. and they're stuffed. You know, or Jalabeg goes off and they're stuffed. When things aren't going for you as a team, yeah. that's often when um, your 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 the risk can get, can get exposed. Um, and, and look, there's there's so much that Farrell's doing well, and he's also helped by the system, isn't he? He's got a player pool which is maybe like the perfect size. Doesn't give him all these selection headaches week on week on week, which the England head coach gets. And I know there'll be not many rivers being cried for for England setup <laughs> because of their numbers. Yeah. But it is still a really tough job, that England head coach job, because you, you have no control over where the clubs play these players. So we're going to have all these number 13s and no number 12 at the moment. So Ollie Lawrence, who played 12, normally plays at 13. Fraser doing well, he played 12, normally plays at 13. Whereas Ireland have one province with Stuart McCloskey playing 12, one with Bundyaki playing 12, one with Robbie Henschel playing 12. And look, if they got a couple of injuries, they might be exposed, but they haven't been. They're being managed well enough. So they, they kind of can just fit into the system. It's a bit like when Mar Nonny would go out and Sonny Bill would come in. They don't have to 
throw the baby out with the bathwater because you've got an injury. There's a similar type of player that can fit into the structure. The problem with, say, in England is that Fraser Dingwall's playing 12 one week and Ollie Lawrence is 12 another, and they're, they're chalk and cheese as players. So, so whether it's Farrell, and it no doubt is, but it's also the fact that he's got provinces playing players in certain positions in decent form so when there is an injury or he does need to shuffle his pack he can do that and they can they can fit in really nicely how impressed were you with uh, the more this goes on the more annoyed i am with scotland for not just beating france regardless of the decision at the end this would have been so well set up for like two teams going for a grand slam on the last day in dublin and the tournament needs it i think it would have been a lot of fun i'm feeling a little I, i was dead excited for the six nations but you can't quite shake the kind of after the Lord Mayor show feel about it. You know, the the coaches are talking about transition. The players, um, likewise, even the officials were getting slightly new referees giving their first taste of Six Nations rugby, which is great. But it's like the world rugby are going, oh, it's the Six Nations after World Cup. This is the time to experiment to get the refs ready for 2027. <laughs> so you just kind of wanted a Six Nations where there were three or four teams firing up the blocks. We've kind of really only got two who have done that yeah if i wasn't four, irish i don't know how much i'd be enjoying the whole thing yeah um, and and there's a very very good chance that ireland win this win the six the, the six nations a week early and actually i would rather they did than have this situation where scotland need to go and score 12 tries and win by th- do you know what i mean I, i'd like that to be just a shootout scotland ireland for a triple crown and the thing that slightly i think temp or slightly affected the build-up to the world cup game and look, don't get me wrong, Ireland were way better than Scotland, was this kind of, oh, well, Scotland need to, to win by eight. Yeah. So when they are getting territory in possession in that the first 10 minutes in Paris, they don't kick the goal to build a score because they, that's in their mind probably. So maybe if Ireland wrap it up a week early, that's that's the best thing because not not for the, you know, it'd be great if England won and kept it really alive, but just so Scotland Ireland can be a proper game in its own right and not this kind of, oh, well, let, let's look, let's do the maths. But um, yeah, I, 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 I think um, Scotland have been really good. I was really impressed with the way they won this game, given they went down. And of the four, I kind of think it may be the most impressive Calcutta Cup win because they were favourites. And I thought maybe it was set up for an England smash and grab, but it was anything but. Chris, I actually love this fixture, I have to say. And I know it's probably really annoying from an English perspective, but I was thinking about... You know the moment when Finn Russell had his kick blocked down and it sort of encapsulated Finn Russell and this fixture over the last few years. Blocked down and then it goes back to Redpath who makes the break and then Finn immediately like scrubs that error from his mind and puts in an absolute perfect cross kick for Van der Merwe who catches on the bounce and it was one of those moments where that bounce could have gone anywhere but it, it couldn't go anywhere. It was going to bounce into his hands because Finn was having that sort of day, Van der Merwe were having that sort of day and the Scots, when it's running for them against England, those things just seem to happen. I, I thought it was quite a, a fun game to watch. Mm. And I think if you, I mean, how cool, look, it'd be, there'd be Scotland fans who'd be going, okay, let's move on from from England, let's talk championships, talk titles, talk triple crowns. But how cool would it be to be a Scotland fan at the moment? You know, England, whether whether it's away from home as underdogs or at home as favourites, they just are managing to 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 get the better of England. And as you say, the bounces go their way. Finn, I don't think, was great for forty, and then comes up with a killer play. He actually mm. got charged. Then he put a little nudge in on Lawrence. So that the tricks, the trade. All the canny little bits they they're they're doing, they're just being smarter, they're being streetwise compared to England, um, and they're taking their chances. And yeah, if you're if you're a Scot in that Murrayfield crowd, it would just be incredible because you know you saw England come out, play some decent stuff, have have a fair bit of ball, 
you know, statistically be competitive in a lot of the areas, but where it really matters, Scotland's ability to strike, their red zone efficiency is <laughs> it's light and day compared to England. And um, yeah, they deserved it and they've won it again. And now the acid test for them is if they can go and back it up in, in Rome, but but really whether they can get close to Ireland in Dublin, because that's one of the, the biggest jobs in world rugby at the moment. The takeaway for me was that that Scottish team felt very comfortable in playing that English team. And, and that's been that's built up over a period of time um so you know um, they were favorites going in they were they were rightly favorites that doesn't always sit well but actually at, at some point you know you have to accept that and it felt as if scotland had and they were comfortable with delivering it you know and that's based on you know four years or three years before that of success and this is maybe the difference between scotland playing england at the moment or other teams and, and Scotland may be playing Ireland because that's the kind of hurdle and 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 that they need to get over. And actually, I think once they get over it once, it becomes you know much more achievable to to have success. And um, I think maybe it was I, I'm stating your line here, Chris, but not dissimilar to the situation Ireland were in with the All Blacks for all those years, um, but in microcosm, you know, um, that that. It, bec- it became much easier to beat them the second time, the third time, whenever, after they got that monkey off the back. And this generation of, of the Scottish team needs to have a success and a significant success against Ireland to actually make to make things properly competitive. Because at the moment, although we kind of, you know, we build these fixtures up and I'm the worst for doing it because every year I think, oh, maybe this is this Scotland are going to do it. They haven't, and they haven't got, they haven't really got that close um, for for a while against Ireland. It's it's not a competitive fixture. Maybe that will change, you know, last weekend of the Six Nations, but, but I'm not certain. But look at the mistakes Scotland have made in, like Stuart Hogg dropping the ball over the line in Dublin. Um, was that maybe four, six years ago? And I guess mm. like when they were playing really well, had Ireland on the run a bit, they they don't make that mistake anywhere else. You feel there's that, you know, they're not making that mistake in Rome. There's that psychology of, oh, it's Dublin and we've got to take our chances because Ireland is so good. Not one here in, in ages. Um, and, and to your point, Shane, like I remember Scotland when they won for the first time at Twickenham in how many years it was since 1983 behind closed doors. But they looked so nervous at the end of that game They'd controlled the game. They, they were 13-6 up, I think, but only one score. And then Finn kind of goes into the pockets, tries to drop goal, gets charged down. England have it. Hamish Watt, it was all chaotic. There was not a calmness about putting England away because they hadn't done it for ages. And psychologically, there was this big hurdle for them to overcome. But since overcoming that hurdle, it was kind of routine and it was a party atmosphere at Murrayfield. But the celebration from the players was nowhere near as as outlandish as it would have been two, three, four years ago, or back in 2018 when it was, it was, it was, you know, they, they went absolutely nuts. And the way that Finn was able just to turn England around, control the game, constantly being in control of the scoreboard, never really looked threatened, was an example of indicator of how Scotland in this fixture have just come to control it, be the favourites and, and beat England without perhaps putting in a, a, one of their best ever performances. Shane, Russ Petty had a stat on Twitter 22% of Scotland's home tries versus England in Six Nations have been scored by Duhan van der Merwe between the 20th and 30th minute in that game. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's so good. Just and discuss. I mean, like, what percentage of them have been all-time great tries? Like, well. Thunderbolts, yeah. <laughs> um, he's a funny guy. Like, he obviously got the yellow card. He missed an up and under. But when there's a turnover or a chance to score a try, he turns into a different person. He's just a classic example of a player who you've got to 
you've got to focus on what he can do and not what he can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and to, to bring it back to England, apologists because it's the team I cover the most, it, they've say got, let's say they, they lined up 12 wingers in the league. They would then be able to go through all of their different credentials, their assets, their attributes and go, well, you know, he's good at eight things, not so good at four. Um, but then there'll be players like, you know, an Adam Radwan or Paolo Adogbu now plays for Italy, but other players who have kind of raw physical ability, but they would go, high ball, he'll be exposed, get at him a bit defensively, not going to pick him, but maybe goes back to the player pool point. Scotland don't have that luxury of having 12 wingers and and, and sort of going, combing through all their attributes and then picking the right one. They just go, well, this guy's big, he's fast. He's got that X factor that you maybe can't quantify. You maybe can't find in the stat sheet something that Duan van der Merwe has because he, you know, on paper, he's got raw physicality, he's got pace, he's got power, but other people in the world have that. Mm. But he's a, a managed to, to to score the most extraordinary tries that that have something in, he's got something else intangible, whether it's of confidence, an eye for the trial, and something you can't quite measure. Uh, he he reminds me also of, of a coaching point that Joe Smith used to put forward. Everybody would be practicing the skill that they're weak at, you know, if you needed to a better left foot or you you know, you need to get better in the air, passing left to right, whatever it is, you know, you spend time at, and you need to because you as as Chris said, you need to have kind of a, an overall skill set at a level. But actually what's really important, and I think this is important outside rugby, is find the thing that you're good at and make that the differentiator between you and everybody else and just lean into that. So put yourself in a position where you can impact games using that skill. And that's what Vandermorf... Now, it's broad for him because he's he's such a powerful runner, but actually that's really all you have to worry about. And that's what's the difference between winning and losing big fixtures because you need that exceptionalism not just you know a steady eddy unfortunately you need exceptionalism and everything else needs to get to a bar of course because you know don't get to a certain level and then you become a liability but he's he's far from that although not perfect but that sort of exceptional ability that he has is what wins games and what wins Calcutta Cups and potentially Six Nations and potentially last games in Dublin. <laughs> yeah, well, Chris, Italy could have done with a bit of steady Eddieism at the end of the game <laughs> oh. yesterday. Oh, what a heartbreaker. Well, and it goes back to the point. Um, if that is a, I don't know, Italy are playing a World Cup game against Namibia um, and it's the last uh, kick of the conver- last conversion of a 40 point win, Garbisi, the, the ball's not falling off the tee, is it? You'd think you, so, so something has happened there. I don't know. And Garbisi is such a wicked little young player. He's he's, he's going to be a superstar. He's had a little bit of, I think, a, a tricky spell with him changing clubs, but he's just all class. And I, I, how, yeah, I don't know whether he's just put the ball down and slightly snatched at it, whether the shot clock's got in his head. I don't know. And then even then he's made a decent enough contact and it's just dragged a little bit across. I mean, given the ball fell off the tee and he had no time to to, to, to steady himself. He still gets it really close. He still almost nails it. Oh, I thought oh, it was going over. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, was yeah going for sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure, you kind of worried about the distance because he didn't ping it. Then, oh, it's definitely got the distance. Then just slides across. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just one of those, that's one of the things that makes sports so special. You know, we live in this era of kind of making sport from an art to a science. And 
however hard you know unless we have robots playing and it's done by ai there is always going to be it's always going to be an art to it it's going to be humans and a human error and intangible things you can't quite qualify and you can't quite you know use statistics on and the way the ball fell off that tee was just one of those things that what can you do and you felt desperate for italy because they had a great opportunity but it's a great result in the context of their 20s doing so well and benetton doing so well it just continues to add to this picture that yes Italy's results have been awful in the Six Nations but that is a rugby country that is well well worth sticking with and investing in because across the piece there is enough sign of of positivity to suggest that that Italy are you know very much meriting being where they are at the moment. Did the referee make a human error Shane with the couple of French players encroaching? Ian Madigan went quite big on this last night. I I still can't get my head around how did the ball fall off the tee? Like is that pure luck? Is that a wider piece of the stress of the environment that you know that the Garbies didn't literally didn't put the ball down properly, or you know was inexact of it? But it just seems bananas that under those circumstances, you know, with everything on on the line, that um, that uh, you know it would happen at that very moment. A, a, you know, for an Italy team, this is not you know any for an Italy team. That was, you know, in the process of, 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 you know, securing a win to make history and something that they was was essential to them. So, of all the an, an, an analysis that people do and teams do, where's the analysis for the ball falling off the bloody tee with like ten seconds to go before you kick it? I can't get my head around it. After that, there was a series of, of mistakes from the referee. I have some sympathy, given um, his experience level the circumstances of what was going on and the pressured environment. I think that is very, very difficult call to make. He got it wrong. Yeah. I don't know if he gets away with it or not. I don't know. I don't know what happens from here. So on I think on the, on the ref, like we also have to, it's when you referee the game retrospectively, as we all do, and we go through and we go, Oh, he's in at the side and they're off their feet. And you know, that could have been, a, if the refs can't referee a game like that, you know, a number of times that someone will come to play the ball and, and the ref will coach them back. We'll just go, no, 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 ruck. Or you heard a few times, dead ruck in over the weekend. So the referee has to kind of use their judgment all the time to, even if things could technically be given a penalty, they've also got to decide whether it's reached a threshold of illegality to be penalised. And Christoph Ridley may have decided, look, the French players come forward almost out of curiosity the ball's fallen off. What happens now? It's not a charge. It's not an attempt to put put them off. Oh, there, there definitely would have been recourse to say, look, you can't come forward. We need to, you know, march 10 or, or retake or even stop the clock. He could have probably used that discretion, even though he can't with the ball falling off the tee. So there could have been things he would have done. But also, I'm not sure necessarily in the laws that he's missed something that's clear and obvious that he definitely should have penalised the French player because he may have just used it in a heat at the moment and gone, he's moving forward. He's not trying to charge. Just get back. Clock's still on. Let them get on with it. But yeah, it's a really tough one for us because it could have gone the other way for sure. Yeah, I think somebody like Johnny Sexton or Sam Warburton or somebody like that would have actually spotted it and just sort of fought their case a little bit. And it's funny that Garbisi afterwards, I don't know if you've seen this, Chris, he took full responsibility. I take full responsibility for this, which kind of hints that maybe he didn't put the ball in the tee properly because I'm sure you've seen these modern tees up close it's very hard for the ball to fall out of it it's kind of got like a little sticky rubber thing on it and um, I just wonder did he rush the placement of the ball because there's no other reason for it to fall out there's no other way for a ball to fall out of a tee there's no wind there's no rain there's no nothing no I think maybe he's thinking I want to take the full minute 
to steady myself, take my time, go through my routine, not to snatch, not to hurry it, do what you do. And then he's just, he's got the place of the ball down wrong. I don't know, but I thought that was a, that was a brilliant reaction from Garbisi. I mean, uh, he, he kind of had, he didn't sort of fall on the floor. He, he kept his head high, um, magnanimous afterwards. And I think Italy, they would have loved to have won. They didn't lose. Then they know this is a bit of a process, a new coach. They've got two games now where they will feel they can give Scotland a fright and they can win in Cardiff. And and maybe if that was the final game of the tournament, it could have been a different reaction from the Italians. But they know that they are potentially at a point where they can cause the next two teams some problems. Chris, there was a 98% probability of France winning that game. I don't know what the stats will be on Ireland-England, but it won't be quite that high. But people are kind of seeing this as a procession. You've even said it in this show that, oh, is this Six Nations so great? Ireland just going to run away with it. But is there something about this Ireland-England fixture, like England have had a couple of red cards and yet still pushed Ireland close? Ireland haven't played particularly well against England. England sort of got excited by their power game. Can you see a Styles make fights, uh, sort of one-off English big performance, something there that gives England loads of hope? And they've also, as you've also suggested, quite a few selection issues. They could bring Freddie Stewart back. They could bring in Finn back in at, at half. They could... There's a load of changes they can make, quite frankly. Manu could come in. So they could actually change their whole style. They could change selection and they could pull out a one-off too. Yeah, that's the, the style is to keep it because I think England at the moment are trying to run before they can walk. There's all this chat about the new defensive system and there's all this chat about a new style of attack. That is a lot to take on. And I know they've been in camp five weeks and England fans don't have a kind of, you know, an, an unlimited amount of patience and understandably so. But I felt their best bet of going to Ed- winning in Edinburgh would have been to go up and play more like their World Cup style. And I know they're trying to move the team on, but I felt a win was the most important thing for this England team to break out of this two out of five cycle to get some confidence ahead of the big Irish and French clashes that were still to come. I felt they had to go with a win- winning is everything mentality against Scotland. I'm sure they had it, but it felt as if they were trying a lot. They were moving the ball around the halfway line. Furbank knocks on, Van der Merwe scores. Would England have been better off playing a lot more of a kicking game and trying to, to to win that way. Maybe not, maybe because they just don't have the tools to overpower Scotland anymore. But I just felt by making the game loose and, and that could have just been down to their mistakes, it fed into Scottish hands. And again, I go to the point, they're not going to be able to knit together cohesive attack to beat Ireland. Not in a month of Sundays. I think their best bet would be perhaps to try the tactics they did two years ago after the Ewell's red card, which was to hustle and harry and get twicken and roaring. And in Dublin, before the Stewart red card, where they also were causing Ireland problems. The problem Borthwick's got is he's trying to move the team on. Mm. He's trying to move the team on, and he's kind of trying to move the team on while keeping experience, while keeping with this contestable kicking game, but also moving the ball, while trying a new defensive system, but also needing results because results in Six Nations have been so poor. So he's got four or five different things he's trying to, to marry up. And at the moment, you get a situation like you've got at Scotland. And... It's going to be a lot of soul searching with England now because if they are off it and they make mistakes with the ball in hand, they cough ball up and they give Ireland field position and territory, they will get destroyed. So they, they what is their best chance of beating Ireland? And that's a really good question. And if it is to go back to more of the World Cup style, maybe that's just, just a game that'll get them within five or ten. But I'm not sure if they're trying to take on a little bit too much at the moment, too soon, mm. and it could end up costing them a, quite badly. There's a chance Borthwick isn't a very good coach. No, that's not true. That that that's that's not true because he's his his body of work says that he's a good coach, and the players that have worked with him are blown away by his coaching. 
There is an argument England have a have a have a callow coaching team in terms of international experience for sure. Because even though Felix Jones been there, done it, like the guy's still in his thirties. Wigglesworth's a hot shot young coach. He's late thirties, I think, uh, maybe forty. They're all of a certain age. They probably do lack a bit of experience. Um, and Borthwick lacks, of course, miles on the clock at head coach level. He also, we need to know what style he's going to implement the England team. And if it's Leicester style, whether he's actually going to have the tools to do it without guys like Montoya and Jasper Visa and, and other big carriers and like they had with Leicester. There's no doubt Borthwick's a good coach, but the trouble is the England head coach role requires way more than being a good technical coach. Selection, it's coming up with styles, it's appeasing well, well, the public, it's all of that stuff. But it also depends whether he's a good coach for this England team or international rugby. And I think, you know, that is, there's potentially still questions to be answered there. I also think there's, a, there's an issue here of being half pregnant for, for England. You know, what do they want to be? Did They went through that World Cup playing a kind of a reductive style to get over the World Cup. Yes, and, and we'll do okay. And they did okay in terms of results in a, in a, in a sort of pool that really suited them. But <clears throat> the questions remain. There was, uh, you know, there was no development, certainly, of the offensive game. I think we're seeing a development of the, the defensive game, although I don't think it was an area that England actually needed to have a, kind of a wholesale change in, but they've, they've opted to do it with bringing Jones. That is difficult. That's not, going, that's not ready now, and it's not going to be ready in two weeks' time either. So you're dealing with that. And then what is going on with the, with the offensive game? So, you know, and are, is Borthwick committed to it? Is he happy to to take the loss or take losses in in the in the Six Nations? Um, uh, you know, is that something that you can do or you're permitted to do as an England coach? I'm not sure it is. Um, and you know, can you sort of tell your players, listen, we're trying to develop or we're developing this overall more attacking game plan and you, you know you saw with the selection and some of the the aspects of the play against Scotland that this is what we're trying to do but hang on a second we're pulling the handbrake up in two weeks time for for um, Ireland and we're playing this more reduced basic game plan because actually do you know what I'm not sure we're able to deliver this game plan yet and all the players are going hang on a second well we're, if we're not capable of doing it why are we doing it and you know your, your question are sort of fundamental skill and you know if, if this is going to work it should work against against Ireland so I think there's a danger here that if his messaging isn't very clear that you you kind of one you lose a you lose a changing room fairly easy you don't develop an identity and uh, players get stuck uh, in betwixt and between and I think there was a bit of that against uh, Scotland at the weekend All right, well let's not do our entire preview now we've got another another week next week to build up that one (laughs) Shane, Chris brilliant stuff thanks a million See you guys looking forward to it next week A lot of times you say something on this show and you're like Jeez, you know, that could come back to bite me in the arse now, you know. But like, I could just come out and say what I like about the Scotland rugby team. They will, you'll never ever get a chance to play audio back to me and be like, what were you thinking? How could you have come out and said such a thing? Oh, Florida, Scotland. When will we see your like again? Scotland. Our disgrace to World War. That fought and died for the jobs. Your wee bitill and glad and stood against him. My name's Jackley McCaffrey. Proud Edwards Army. You're always on the three bitill. Never fit. And sent him home. Scotland rugby team, the sporting world's greatest pinata. Do you think again? <laughs> Turner, do it!
here year after year and laugh at the Scottish rugby team. And I'll, I'll never be called out. It's the freedom that I have. Three Scotsmen. It's been that all day, and it's come loose, and Hamish Watson belted into the sand, and that is it. And 38 years of birth are over for Scottish rugby. We kept up our recent trend of amazingly successful Ireland team playing in front of extremely passive atmosphere. Mm. And I say the formula works as we made the point last week in the World Service. Keep it up, everybody. Keep up on those points. Keep talking about your life insurance, life insurance policies. policies and your <laughs> income protection on your house, whatever it is. Just yeah. keep it up. Do not, do not... An, under any circumstances start cheering on this team too much what's a tracker they don't mortgage. want it <laughs> exactly yeah, that'd be Edward the Vital Quarter Simon you made the comparison with Eden Park in Auckland last week mm-hmm. uh, where New Zealand never lose Inco- income protection <laughs> honestly we got an email you're saying that yeah. somebody had overheard somebody talking <laughs> about life assurance it was yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I mean to be fair you're more than likely sitting beside someone who knows what they're talking about. That's the thing. Life- this is my one chance to grill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, here. I know I've, I've never met you before, but <laughs> are you an accountant by any chance? Well, actually, is what happens. I am. <laughs> so New Zealand never lose at Eaton Practice. Over the PA. Is there an accountant in the house? <laughs> Thirty-five thousand people stand up. <laughs> well, I'm actually a stockbroker. If that's any use. Chris Metcalf emails Simon. Hello, I'm a dual New Zealand Irish citizen. Half my life in Auckland half my life in Dublin and London spent many a dreary winter's night at Eden Park I lived two streets away for a while in my early 20s and Simon is right Eden Park is shit (laughs) a partially complete hodgepodge mess of a stadium that is neither a proper cricket ground nor a decent football ground the only joy I ever had there watching rugby was watching Ireland beat the Aussies in 2011 and that was entirely down to the 30,000 Irish people that showed up the 1992 Cricket World Cup and the Eastern Terraces now that's a different story New Zealand won seven on the trot Martin Crow, Ian Smith Mark Greatback Great batch. The Chris Har- the Chris's Harris and Cairns me. Heroes All. Deepak Patel opening the bowling and off spinner. This is a strange email. I've literally gone off on a complete tangent here so I'll have to leave it at that point. Okay, we've got more from Ken, our returning hero, Ken, on the football podcast today uh, talking about the Carabao Cup final which he attended. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank thanks, you, Ken. Ken. Thanks, thanks, you back. And thank thanks, you, Simon. Thanks, Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Owen. Michael Murphy and Paul Flynn tomorrow talking King Con's hat-trick and is Jim Gavin the man to save Gaelic football? Sign up to the World Service for that one. You can also hear the episodes without any ads. Second Captain's podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.